Job chapter 29 if you want to grab your Bible. I put some verses on here so you'll be able to follow if you printed out the handout. But uh, Job has, we've gone through some, we're, we're, we're in about the third section basically of Job where first section is the suffering of Job and and what's going on in the heavenly host between God and Satan and all these things that end up in, in the tragedy that befalls Job, uh, who the Bible tells us is a righteous man, a blameless man. And then comes in Job's friends. And we've been talking about Job's friends for the last several weeks. And Pastor Matt preached a fantastic sermon last Wednesday about Job's friends and their errant theology and how they would put God in a box. And it's really been a, a, a great picture of legalism and things we need to try to avoid in our own heart. And uh, just so many practical things come from the errant beliefs and teaching of Job's friends and the way that they responded to him. But in the midst of all this is Job. He's the one taking all this verbal abuse. He's the one who's sort of reeling from all of this. And when we get to chapter 29 of Job, Job is going to, uh, he's going to pivot for us. He's going he's gonna to shift and we're going to get to kind of walk with him and we're going to identify maybe some paths that we've walked down when we hurt or when we suffer, some questions that we might ask. But as we begin, I want us to think about how uh, when when suffering lingers, when it stays, when it endures, when it's not ending, um, you know, we start wondering, you know, uh, when is this going to be over? When is this going to be over? And it's sort of like when you get in the car with your kids and I don't know about you and your kids, but I know me and my kids. If we get in the car and we start going somewhere, there's a question that always gets asked. I mean, there's a lot of questions that get asked, but there's one question that always gets asked multiple times. And it, and depending on where we're going and how far it's going to be, are we there yet? Are we there yet? When are we going to get there? What time is it? Are we there yet? They're wanting to know, are we there yet? Well, Job is wanting to know, am I there yet? Are we there yet, God? Where you're taking me, have I arrived? When is this going to end? When are we going to get to the finish line? And what we're going to see tonight is that the Bible understands the brokenness of this world. It understands the ambiguity of this world, the questions of this world, the things that our heart asks, the way that we feel uncomfortable about things, the way that we're uneasy about things. The Bible's not going to shy away from it. And this prolonged suffering that Job is enduring, this is not a game. This is not a joke. It's a reality. And it's here recorded. Not only is it accomplishing a purpose in Job's life, but it's here for me and you. It's here for us. It's here as a gift from God to encourage us when it seems like our suffering is not going to end. When we're asking God, you see, because a posture of faith that believes that God's in the midst of everything, that God's sovereign, that God is my Lord in control of my life, is going to ask the question, God, are we there yet? Because if I believe that God's in control and I believe that God's doing something in the midst of my suffering, I'm going to ask, are we there yet? If I believe He's with me, are we there yet? And so we got to remember 
that as we're asking, are we there yet? Well, now God's timing is always perfect. He never gets in a hurry. Never. And it seems like his, you know, his timing is not our timing. We've talked a lot about that. His ways are not our ways. But he has perfect knowledge. And therefore, with perfect knowledge, he's able to make perfect decisions according to perfect timing. But we don't understand that. And so what does Job do? In the beginning of chapter 29, Job turns around and he looks in the rearview mirror. And I tell you, I can identify with this because this so oftentimes is exactly what I do when I'm hurting, when I'm struggling, when I'm suffering, when I'm trying to sort out, I'm trying to make sense of my surroundings or my circumstances. I look back, look at what Job does. Chapter 29, verse 1, Job continues his discourse and he says, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in days when God watched over me and his lamp shone upon my head and when it, by his light I walked through darkness. Here's what Job's doing. He's relishing the memory of days gone by. Just like me and you, we all, Job has days where he's looking back to, gr- to great memories. We all have days when there were great moments in our life when we think back and when we think about it we smile you know maybe it was your childhood before you had any responsibilities and you just think of how wonderful your childhood was and that's great some of us the last thing we're going to think about is our childhood but maybe it was when you first got married and you didn't have any money and and you you know lived in this little apartment or efficiency or rental house and all you had was a was a pull out couch or sofa sleeper or something and but it was just a really special wonderful time or maybe it was when your children were young and innocent and and just uh you know just life just seems so uh filled with 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 hope and excitement and you know i don't know but i know that we all have moments in the past that when we think about them they make us smile and we would expect that job in his situation what we know about job that he would be longing for the days when he had his 10 children because he's lost all of his children he'd be longing for the days when they'd come visit him and when they would sit down and enjoy a meal together or sit on the porch and talk and spend time together but job begins with longing for when God watched over me. You see, in verse 2, we see Job's greatest longing. We see that what is tearing Job up inside more than anything else, what, the, what lens it is that Job views his life through, is he's longing for God to be with him in an intimate fellowship see job's not longing for his barns or his cattle or even his reputation or his family he's lost everything he's not longing for all of those things primarily first and foremost what job desires most is the smile of god to return upon his life and it's this beautiful picture where We're going to find out as we read on that it's not that Job doesn't 
long for his children. He does. And it's not that he doesn't long for his way of life and the way things used to be. He does. And those things are, are precious to him. And he, he's broken and grieved by them. But they're not the preeminent desire of his heart. Look at verse 4. Just as I was in the days of my prime when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. You see, we need to remember. I want you to remember something. When we started this Undone series, when we started the book of Job, we asked the question, who is Job? Why is there a book of the Bible named after him? Before we can read his story, we need to know who he is. And we're introduced to Job in the very first verse of this book. And the Bible says there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. It doesn't say there was a man named Job and he was a man of great wealth and he was a man with a large and prosperous family and he was a man who had done great things for his community and his city it doesn't say any of those things the essence of who job is is his relationship with god and that's what's important to see you see what made job who he was was not the things that he accomplished or possessed now he accomplished a lot of great things and he possessed a lot of wonderful things but that's not what made Job the person that he was. What made Job who he was was his fellowship, his fellowship. Now, I know that if you are filling it in on the computer and you write fellowship, there's going to be a red squiggly line under it. And that's because your computer's wrong. And I know if you type that in, it's going to have a red. Just ignore that because that's my favorite word, not just because I made it up, because it's my favorite word, because it should be everyone's favorite word. Job, he, he didn't just he didn't just know who God was. He didn't he, he wasn't somebody who just went to church or wore a t Christian T-shirt or sang Christian songs or. He was a man who practiced fellowship. You see, fellowship is it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't the things that, that Job said. He said the right things, but that's not the things that made him unique. It wasn't the things that he did. He did a lot of wonderful things, but those weren't the things. It was that he said and did the right things because he truly believed the right things. You see, his life was a reflection of his relationship. That's what fellowship is. Fellowship is when you're actually following God you're following Jesus so you're going where he's going and you're doing what he's doing because you're in relationship with him basically James would love fellowship because what it was was his works validated his faith that's how James would say it. James would say that's real faith because you can see it by his works his works are evidence of the reality and the genuineness of his faith. Verse 7 says, When I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men, they saw me and they hid, and the aged arose and they stood. The princes refrained from talking, 
and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. This is the kind of reputation that Job had. People held Job in such high esteem. His integrity and reputation was such that when he walked into the courtyard, people took notice and the foolish people left and ran away because they knew that they didn't want to act foolish in his presence. People stopped talking about nonsense. They stopped talking about the football scores or they stopped talking about who was on the late night talk shows last night or they stopped telling, you know, inappropriate jokes. Everything, all that chatter stopped when Job walked into the room. He wasn't a man of frivolous things. He was a man of great integrity and great purpose. And you can tell by the way that people responded to him. You see, when it, when it comes, if you study great men in history, what you find is that most great men are feared and not loved. Some great men are loved and not feared, but it's a very, very unique category to be in when you are loved and feared. And this was the category that Job was in. The way his community responded to him. The way people knew that he was a man of wisdom. As Pastor Matt talked about last week, he had great wisdom and discernment. And he was benevolent and generous and helpful and took time for people. Look at verse 11. When the ear heard, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw, then it approved me. When I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper, the blessing of the perishing man came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. You see the kind of person that he was? Job was a, he utilized his resources for not only for those in need, but he was, he was a defender, he was a protector, he was somebody who made his city a better place because he lived there. He defended the defenseless and he stood on behalf of those taken advantage of. What a great thing to have said about you. What, what better thing could you be known for than being a defender of the defenseless who stands on behalf of those taken advantage of? I, I so just marvel at this passage. He was a crusader for the powerless. Job and so you see you, you see little glimpses of Jesus, how Job would seek out the hurting and the wounded and the downtrodden. Job, who was a man of great means, authority, power, and wealth, he had it all. And instead of sitting in an ivory tower and, and just giving uh, the big contracts to his golfing buddies or or just sitting at, at large tables drinking wine and, and, uh, and, and talking to other power brokers. 
He got dirty. He went into the streets and the slums and he advocated for those who were in need. He went and not only that, but verse 17 tells us he went after the exploiters. He went after those who were taking advantage of people. My goodness, although he was a man of great wealth, he didn't forget those in need. He championed the cause of the abused. You know, it's easy I, when, when I hear people uh, teaching on the book of Job or, or so many commentaries in my study as I've read through them and so many uh, commentators will reference, you know, the, the how in this time in history there was so much suffering and so much, uh, you know, just abuse and people didn't have rights and this and that and the other. And it sort of frustrates me because it's almost like people are trying to make an excuse they don't want to face the reality that nothing's changed. It's the same today. It might be uh, hidden under this glossy, shiny veneer of, you know, that tries to make everything look okay. But let me tell you something. There is every bit as much abuse and corruption. There is every bit as much taking advantage of the of those who are underprivileged, of those who don't have a voice. And when you swim in the ocean of the pain and the suffering of those who are weak and feeble and defenseless, you realize how rampant it is and that nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Humanity was broken then and it's broken now. And what we need is more Job's to rise up and to, to, you know, leave their leisure behind and their comfort behind and stop living for their security and start devoting themselves to making a difference in people's lives for the glory of God. He, in my opinion, was the embodiment of integrity of an Old Testament saint. He was such a picture of what God would call us to be. And the way that he made the place that God planted him better is something we should really think about. We should think about, we should ask ourselves the question, how am I making the place where God's planted me better? How are people flourishing because I'm near? How are people Seeking and finding Jesus because they know me or because I've I have access to them. How are they? How are they being shown the hope that things don't have to stay the way that they are? In verse 25, the Bible says, I chose the way for them. You see, Job, people lean on him. He sat as chief, the Bible says, so I dwelt as the king in the army. As one who comforts mourners. He looked back. He looked back at all that God had done in his life. And all that God had used him and allowed him to do. And he looked back at those times and what he longed for. He longed for a lot of things. His heart was broken over many things. But above all things he longed for the, the smile of God to be on his life again. And he remembered how God used him. He remembered the opportunities that God had granted him. And he no doubt thought with great joy 
about the things that used to be in his life. But then when we get to chapter 30, we sort of pivot again and we're not looking back. And now we're we're taking inventory of right now. You see, look at verse one of chapter 30. It begins with but now you see where we were looking back. But now, but now what's the case now? They mock me. Who's they? The same people. Now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose father I, fathers I disdained or put with the dogs of my flock. And now I am their taunting song. Yes, I am their byword. See, verse 9, and now. Verse 16, and now. My soul is poured out because of my plight. The days of my affliction take, affliction take hold of me. So Job now focuses on his present situation. And it's painful. And he's recounting that these same people that Job used to bless, now they mock and they curse him. Chapter 30 is painful. If you read it, he talks about how they spit upon him and how they jeer at him and how they, I mean, they are brutal in the things that they, they say. Where were all the people that Job had helped? Where were all the where were all the, the, the orphans that he had advocated for and, and helped that had grown up? Where were all the people that he had defended? Where were all the people that he had stood in the gap for? Were there not some who wanted to show their appreciation and their encouragement for how their lives had been made better by knowing Job? Where are the people when Job has a need? While Job devoted his life to helping those in need, when it came time for him, there was nobody. Nobody came to his aid. Nobody. I put a quote on your handout from Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, If you pick up a starving dog and make him prosperous, he will not bite you. This is the principal difference between dog and a man. So here's Job under an avalanche of injustice and pain. Job resists bitterness and embraces sovereignty. You see, when you think about all the ways that Job had had served his community and all the things that he had done and how he had given of himself so sacrificially, doesn't it start to rise up in you this injustice? It's so unfair. It's so wrong. How could this be true? And you almost, me and you can almost get ourselves bitter thinking about Job's plight. But Job doesn't get bitter. He resists bitterness and he embraces sovereignty. Most people in Job's situation choose bitterness. Most people, when they're not served, when their needs aren't met, especially when they feel like that they've done that for other people, they get bitter. And when we become bitter, what does it do? It exposes our motives, doesn't it? Now, I'm going to let you in on something. There's a, there's a beautiful principle here. 
it's not just that Job didn't didn't become bitter because Job was, you know, better than us or that he was, uh, you know, some special. No, Job just understood something that bitter people don't understand. You see, what makes a person bitter is their motive. Their motive. See, serving others is not, doesn't obligate people to serve you. Do you know that? You know, one of the deadly things in our culture is this issue of entitlement. That somehow we feel entitled to something. And one of the deadly things that creeps into the human heart, the broken heart of flesh is this idea that well I've served and I've given myself for all of these people and then when I needed them they didn't come to me and what it exposes is is that you served for the wrong reason because the Bible says in Luke chapter 14 Jesus says when you serve when you give a dinner you know what you do you invite people who can't repay you you be a blessing to people who can't be a blessing back to you You give your resources and your time and your energy to people who can never repay you because you're not doing it for that. You're doing it for me. You see, if you believe that, you won't be bitter when people don't serve you. But if you're doing it for the wrong motivation, if you've allowed a little bit of entitlement to creep into your heart, then when people let you down and fail you, it's going to get you. You know, the Bible also tells us that when we help others, we do so because we love Christ and we want to glorify Him. Matthew chapter 5. You see, the command in the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus is to let our light shine, to let our faith be seen to be an embodiment of the God whom we serve, to live as an ambassador. Not so that people will see us and say what a great person we are, but to do that so that they will see God and they will glorify our Father in heaven. But if that's not your motivation, if you're doing good things but for the wrong reason, you're setting yourself up for disaster. Because the people that you're serving and the people that you're loving and the people that you're caring for are broken people. And they're going to let you down. And anytime you put your hope in people, you've made a catastrophic mistake. The only one who won't let you down is God. And so why do you do the things that you do? Why? Why do you serve the people that you serve? Is it because you love God? Or have you allowed your heart to believe the lie of our culture? That because you're serving them, you're storing up So that one day when you need to be served, they'll be there for you. You're setting yourself up for bitterness. Job resisted bitterness, but he embraced sovereignty. See, when we embrace sovereignty, we may not fathom the reason for our suffering, but what's beautiful about it is we know there's a purpose. 
You see, when I embrace the sovereignty of God, then I'm not looking for some person to repay me because I serve them. I'm not looking for people to come to my rescue. I'm not looking. My expectations shift away from people and humans and on to my beautiful, righteous, heavenly Father. When you lose a job, when you get a difficult health diagnosis or a season of illness or when you watch a parent or loved one die, when you experience chronic pain that seems to never end, what happens? Clarity comes in, doesn't it? Pain brings clarity. Suffering brings clarity. You know that you're responding rightly to your difficulty. You know that you have rightly responded to adversity when it brings clarity. Because what the Bible shows us about suffering is that it's meant to bring a crystal clear focus. We should go through seasons of suffering and adversity and we, what should come, what should rise out of that suffering is not that that suffering wasn't real, not that that suffering wasn't painful, but what should rise out of that is the fact that we can now see with new clarity the things that really matter and all the things that don't. And without suffering, we won't be able to delineate the difference between the two. When we go through suffering rightly, when we embrace sovereignty, we learn that God's nearer than we realized. We realize that God is in the fire with us. He does walk through the flood with us. He's there in the midst with us. And as we're busy looking for God to rescue us and take it away, as we're busy uh, pleading with God to remove it or to make it disappear, the whole time God's right next to us. And He's whispering. As we're shouting at Him, He's whispering. If you'll just listen, you'll know that I'm here and I'm with you. We discover things like our issues of pride and self-reliance. I mean, this season of the coronavirus has been so valuable in my heart. It has been so valuable. So valuable. I'm so grateful that God allowed me to be studying through the book of Job as we have gone through this. It has literally just been such a and encouragement to my heart. Not that things haven't been hard. Not that they haven't been challenging. Not that I haven't had my moments. Because I have. But in the midst of it all, God's shown me areas of my life where I was self-reliant. Areas of pride in my life. I've realized how near God is. And I've gotten such new clarity. Maybe you see, as I've seen, how you're overworked or stressed or tired. These are all things that come from clarity. When we receive clarity, we start to see that in suffering, what God wants me to do, what He wants you to do, what He wants us to know, 
He, he wants us to be quiet. He wants us to be still. You know, when I'm suffering, I have a lot to say to God. I have a lot of things I want God to know. I have a lot of things I want to inform God about. I got a lot of, and that's when I need to shut my mouth and be quiet. It's been such a wonderful season for me to just be still with God, to just be still. I've realized that maybe there's a, maybe there's a lot of things and maybe they were good things. But when they're not there, when, when the schedule is not just filled with appointment after appointment after appointment, when days aren't just packed from one day to the next to the next, and suddenly there's an opportunity to be still, just listen to get some clarity, to realize suffering brings clarity. I hope that you have experienced clarity in this season. I really hope that. And then there's this question. You see, when we embrace, when we embrace our uh, sovereignty, we ask this question. We, we, we respond to God. This is the question that, that I've been pressing to you over the last month. It's been pressing on me. So, so in this suffering, in this time, in this, in this as God is, is doing something, well, what are we doing with the information that I have? What are we doing? In other words, what I don't want to do is what's the easy thing to do. You know what the easy, easy thing to do is? Is to take this clarity and to be grateful for it and to do nothing with it. I know that there's going to be some challenging times ahead. And one of the things that's going to make the times challenging ahead is that there's many of you who don't want the clarity. In other words, what you want is you want to go back to the way things were. You want to go back to Jerusalem. And it would be so easy to do that. But that's not what we're to do with this clarity. You see, because if we go back, if all you do is, is retreat back to what you were doing, then what was the point? What was the point of what God gave you clarity about? What's changed? How are you different? What, is he, what has He shown you? So this is, this is some takeaways, some practical takeaways that, that I would just... I would just commend onto your life that I, I will cling to so desperately. The first one is this. Capture your clarity. I don't know about you, but I'm going to tell you that my journals from the last several months are going to be some of the most precious things that I will ever own. And I would imagine that for years to come, I will go back. Just like... I have over and over in my mind revisited those 
those weeks and months after Hurricane Katrina and all the things that I learned and all the things that I saw and experienced and the way that God revealed himself in the midst of all that, the same thing is true now. And as I'm as I'm just journaling my thoughts and the things that God has laid upon my heart and what he's shown me, I can I can sense as it's coming off the pen. I know these are things that are going to bring great value into my life in the years to come. Capture your clarity. Don't let clarity slip away. Number two, tell someone. Tell someone you trust about the clarity. In other words, what good is it if, if God has given me clarity, but I don't tell anybody, then it's so easy for me to retreat. It's so easy for me not to address it, not to deal with it, not to act upon it, to keep putting it off, to procrastinate it away. And then you blink your eyes and you're right back in the same boat you were in before. Find someone in your small group, someone in your circle of influence, someone in your D group, and talk to them about the clarity that God's given you so that there's some accountability that you convey to them that these are things that God's shown you. Don't let them slip away. And then lastly, depend on God. Depend on God. And this is such a great opportunity. Hardship and, and suffering, things that are unexpected, things that are things that, that shock us out of our, our norm, things that that change and bring us to a new normal. They're not things that we willfully and willingly will walk into, yet they benefit us. They benefit us. And so I'm not going to tell you that that I want suffering to come into my life. But when suffering comes into my life, I want God to do his perfect work in me through it. Depend on God. Trust him. Trust the clarity that you have. Be open to what God wants to do to grow you. Where does he want to take you? It's not just that you, you can't say that things are just going to be different. How are they going to be different? What's going to change? How are you going to be a different spouse? How are you going to be different as a parent? How are you going to be different in the way that you manage your time and your energy and your finances? How are you going to be a different member of this faith family? than you were before this. What is new and different? What has God shown you? Because if, if it's just to go back to the way things were, then what was it all for? Wouldn't a sovereign God just have left us where we were? Of course He would have. I think there's a simple way to sum up Job's life. I mean, it's clarity, right? And so if, if I'm just going to sum up, if I'm, if I'm just going to give you the clarity of 
what made Job the person that he was? What are, what are just the what is the 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 absolute minimal characteristics that made Job the person that he was? It's these three things. He he lived by these principles. First, I'm going to serve God. Above all things, he's going to serve God. He was a servant of God. He was a blameless man. He loved God. He walked with God. He served God. He didn't talk about things. He did things. He didn't tell people about all the things he knew about and how smart he was and all of his theology. He didn't do that. You know what he did? He lived it. He was the embodiment of everything God has been showing us in the book of James. I'm going to serve God. Number two, I'm going to love God. I'm going to love my family. I'm going to love my family. I, I'm going to do right by the people that God's put me around. You know, it, it, was, it was not just Job and his biological family. It was Job and the people that he felt responsible for, the people that he felt that, you know, the people that he employed. And then he's going to bless his city. He had a posture that was determined to make the place that God planted him a better place because he was there. And he did it for the right reasons. He wasn't looking for people to return the favor. He wasn't looking for somebody to scratch his back because he scratched theirs. He would have received it with joy if it would have happened, but he wasn't going to get bitter because his expectation was not based on people. It was motivated by love for God. That's Job. That's this beautiful man who has instructed us at this exact time in our life. What clarity have you gotten? What has God shown you? Don't you already feel that thing inside? That when, when things are changing, how you just want to resist it, and when things are different, you just don't like it. And you, and you, you know, you, you feel that. How, how are you different? When I see you face to face, what will be different? How will you be a different member of this faith family? How will you be a different resident of your neighborhood? How will you be a different employee at your job? How will you be different with your finances, with your relationships, with your family, with your children, with your spouse? How will you be different? We're not going back to Jerusalem. That's not God's plan. Embrace His sovereignty and trust that wherever He leads you, all that matters is that He's there. He's there. I love you. I love you. And I pray that God speak it into your life and that you receive with joy the good gift of His Word. Amen. Be blessed. I love you.